0: Are you an entrepreneur in the AI space struggling to get your company off the ground? Or maybe you're facing challenges in making your AI solution stand out in a crowded market? I'm Matt Shields. I'm the founder of Invest in Square Feet and we are a firm that's dedicated to helping business owners achieve financial freedom through passive investment in real estate. And in this episode, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to dive into the world of artificial intelligence. We're exploring how to build a successful AI company with Andrew Einhorn and as a bonus, he also out his goal to increase his traffic and the action steps that he takes to achieve them.
1: And so I really liked that process of research and allowing the data to drive the decisions and I later went into management consulting for a company called ICF International, it's publicly traded, and they work with a lot of government agencies as well as, as private businesses, and they do a lot of data analysis for them. And so you get contracts like, we work for FAA, Office of Commercial Trace Space Transportation. We work for NASA, we worked for the Star Wars program, the original program of how they can shoot down rockets with rockets, which failed miserably, and we ended up buying the Iron Dome from Israel later on. For 30 years, they tried to figure this out. And I was one of the people who helped a little bit with that project. And so at some point in that job, I was tasked with creating a software system that identified threats. I was working for the Department of Defense and they wanted a system to identify environmental safety risks and threats across all these different army bases around the world. And as we started going through it, we realized like there was no software system that met the criteria. There was something that was what we needed and we had to customize it. And so my job was to figure out how to customize something that was off the shelf and make it fit this massive organization that was the United States military, and I loved it. I just fell in love with the process of coming up with an idea, architecting it, and then watching it come to life. And I found that much more satisfying than just staring at the numbers itself. Although it was a piece of it, right? We were still analyzing the data. And at that point, I think I started to get familiar with it. We did it for a couple of years. And two years after that, I started my last company, which was also a very data heavy company. And in that company, we tracked anything that happened in media and social media to identify emerging events and threats for public organizations, public companies, things like Discover Card or energy companies. We had ExxonMobil, we had a lot of large corporations that always had reputational threats against them or always had something happening. There was a cyber breach or there was a contamination event, or one company was losing trains off the tracks constantly. And it was just event after event. And our job was to flag those events and let the corporate commerce people know that there was a threat or there was something positive happening. And over time, we just saw every time there was an event, there was a share price change and sometimes it was, you know, they'd lose $2 billion in market cap in a day, other times they would gain. And when we did this for 10 years and we were selling software B2B and we were charging, you know, anywhere between 50 to $150,000 a year for a contract. And we just grew it you know, usually with the requests of what our clients were asking for over time, we got really good at it. And we kept seeing these patterns of just the event would happen, the share price would move and realize that there's probably an opportunity. And looking at that from the angle of financial services at a later time, we ended up selling the company after 10 years to a private equity firm, had our exit. We took a bit of a break and then we the technical group and said, okay, what can we do better? Now what? We had done big data, we had done natural language processing. Now we wanted to add artificial intelligence because we realized we needed to understand context and meaning in those Mm -hmm. sentences. Keyword-based stuff was just not going to work. And we started Level Fields with that premise in mind. What's the next big thing, right? And we wanted to still focus on text, and events. And then COVID hit around the time that we were figuring out how to make these self-populating databases with the AI. And it became crystallized for the team that events really do change everything. COVID changed the world. It changed the way we work. It changed the stock market. It changed the trajectory of healthcare and so forth. And so we said, let's make an event-driven system. It monitors and analyzes all these events and gives people an understanding of what's about to happen to give those forecasts. And if we can do that, then we thought that we would be a nice baseline analytics system for all other new AI algorithms that were out there or of AI systems that need accurate data to summarize because they have to get it from somewhere. Like ChatGPT is getting sued, I think, from the New York Times because the Times was saying, "Like, hey, we figured all this out; you're just summarizing it." And I think that trend's going to continue. But we went into kind of eyes wide open, knowing we're going to create a data set that is very accurate, very precise, and allows others to build new stuff off of it. So it, it was a long journey, and I'll pause there. But I would say uh, it's been a fun ride; it's been wild
0: at times. That is so interesting how that all came together and i i feel like let's go back a little bit in the i guess the software progression because i feel like ai is something that most of the people know currently as chat gpt and of course chat gpt is ai artificial intelligence has been around for a while mm-hmm. but what was What was the, what was the market like when you, I think you said it was 2020, maybe right around COVID when you said, I I think we need to incorporate AI into this. Are there libraries out there that you were able to tie in already, or were you figuring out how to develop an AI model, AI databases before that was really a thing? What was that learning process Mm -hmm. like for you? So we had been doing
1: natural language processing work in the previous companies. We had really good technical people that understood how to analyze text and create ontologies and libraries of, of terms and relate terms to one another, which is the basis for the linguistic models that are, that AI is, is based on. And, And AI gets, I think sometimes too much credit for being so brilliant. There's different types, right? For the most part, you're looking at rule-based artificial intelligence. So you give it a rule and it can follow that rule again and again. And if you teach it what it's, when it's right and when it's wrong, it can improve. And I always give the analogy. It's like training a dog. You have a dog, puppy comes in your house. You say, can't pee in my house. Then you go room to room. And then the dog pees in one room and then pees in another. And eventually over time finds out it can't pee at all in your house. But then you bring the dog to your friend's house. The first thing the dog does is pee in your friend's house. And so that's like training AI. You have to give it this sort of context for every situation it's in until you've trained it enough times where it knows, okay, I have now a thousand rules that say I can't pee in any house period. And then it goes on its own. Mm-hmm. So it's been like the evolution of basic NLP into rule-based AI, and then into more advanced AI. Um, we brought on some specialists, PhDs in linguistics, and those who have been trained in artificial intelligence tools. And we started working with a system that was off the shelf when we first began the project and it was 2019. And so we thought, all right, maybe there was something that we could just use. And what we found was that it was so broad and so basic. That we had to do all the work to make it useful. And to put it tangibly, part of what it was doing, if you look at, let's say, a press release that a company sends out, what this broad-based system does is just breaks down the words and says noun, verb, proper noun, subject of the sentence, predicate of the sentence, things like, you know, it's called tokenizing it. And that's the first step in giving it rules, right? Because then the second step is, all right, the rule is now identify all the proper nouns, pull them out and put them into a spreadsheet. And that would be AI. That would be some basic form of AI and you can get more advanced from that. And what we found was like, if you're looking at a press release that's in, let's say, I don't know, the hospitality industry or maybe into Bakery. It's going to look very different than a press release from a, a publicly traded company. They're going to use different words. They're going to say board of directors. The other one's going to say cookies. They're going to be saying bio. And and I always give this example: there's Bluebird bio, which is a company, and then there's the bluebird that flies in the sky. And you have to explain in advance the difference between the two, and you got to do that for millions of things. Um, that's where the training comes in. When we evolved it, we started to look and say, we're going to do all the work anyway. We might as well just start from scratch and own the technology and not have to be reliant on anything third party. But we used it to benchmark ourselves as we went through this process of building it from scratch and then making it very specific for financial services for the types of financial publications and the way that they talk about companies, and even in some cases, like nicknames that exist, AstraZeneca is referred to as Astra in the British media here in the U S Astra is a rocket company from Houston. Okay. So you have to be able to identify that and, and be able to know these sort of nicknames. So as you go through the corpus of data and you grow the sort of intelligence of it, you're building this big library of knowledge that says, if you see the word Elliot in a headline and it's Bloomberg, they're talking about Elliot investment management. They're not talking about Ezekiel Elliot who plays for whatever sports team I can remember, right? And that kind of thing. And so that is the intelligence part of it that can go through and once it's trained and then looks for that again, and as the information comes back, you have people who are, who are saying you're right, you're wrong. And if it's wrong, it creates that rule. Of, okay, that was an incorrect assessment. And then you can get more sophisticated from there when you get into like neural networks and the artificial intelligence begins to make its own association based upon statistics. So let's say if Donald Trump and Joe Biden are mentioned 95% of the time in the same article, when articles about either one of them come out, then there's a very high likelihood. That those two are related entities in some form or fashion and the ai can figure out there's a relationship there it's based on politics because it's always a political source of information and then it can also identify the fact that they're always talking about the word president so we know that this is probably related to the presidential election they can do that without any intervention mm-hmm. and over time if you give it more leeway and training and rules, you can say, okay, when you find a connection like that, do something with it, right? You could tell it to write a blog about it. You could tell it to just drop it into an Excel file or or put it into a database. Or you could say, send me an alert. When you find one of those connections, it's an infinite amount of things that you could task it to do. And for us, what we task it to do is find events that have been proven to move share prices. So when an event happens. There's a lot of noise in the market. There's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of like congesture, conjecture about what's going to be the next Amazon and all this kind of BS pump and dumps that you see. We're really focused on identifying events that are proven historically to move the share price, focusing on those, extracting them, and then using these historical analyses to create forecasts just in the way you would a weather forecast for a region for any particular month. You could say, hey, it's January 24th. The average temperature in Washington, DC, that time of year based on the last 10 years of data is 46 degrees, right? The high average would be 48, the low average is like 38 and you can, we, we do the same thing for events and stock price moves and that's where we leverage the AI to do that. And so our focus is really on the linguistics, like breaking down sentences, understanding context, understanding meaning understanding who's doing what action and even when some of the companies when they put information out there are vague and say things like the board of directors in its recent meeting has approved a share repurchase program on the order of two billion dollars well, but we know that board of directors belongs to apple right then we can put those two things together and and send an alert to our users and say hey apple just did a two billion dollar buyback you don't need to wait around and, and read that in the newspaper. Mm-hmm. You can get it directly from the source. And so we cut out a lot of work for people who are trying to do investment research where normally they sit on Bloomberg threads and MarketWatch threads and mm-hmm. CNN and, and the like. But 90% or more of the information is coming straight from the companies, from their filings and from their mm-hmm. announcements. So we were just cutting through all that and saying... We don't need someone's opinion on whether this is going to be good or bad. We can show you what the data shows. And so we use AI to do that, to yeah, make it that, more efficient.
0: Yeah, so interesting. I want to talk a little bit about the training process because you alluded to it where you said that in the beginning, you're, you're basically saying, This is this Elliot, not this Elliot, right? You're training it. So, how much, how long does it take? how many trainings do you have to manually program in there to be able to get it to the point where it starts to be able to generate its own information? And I don't know, maybe there's even libraries available now that you're able to plug in uh, a little bit more than maybe what there was three, four or five years ago when you guys were starting this. I'm just curious what that transition looked like from being able to move from a manual process to more of an automated process. And is it still even manual at this point where you're Some of the things that you don't have trainings for, you don't have that information for, maybe that is still being done manually. I'm just curious on what that looks like for you.
1: It takes years is the short version and it's taken us years, but it's constantly refining and part of it is that language changes. Mm -hmm. The way that people talk about things actually changes over time. So it's not static. See some of these like more common acronyms creep into actual news articles and become things memes that started out as memes become just cultural references and, and you have to catch those. You can certainly borrow from some basic libraries if you want to get a list of agencies of the United States government, right? So you don't have to start from scratch because there's a list of those agencies and you upload that. And so when it identifies a proper noun in a sentence and that proper noun is the U S Congress, the U S Congress is part of the U S government. So you can shortcut those types of things, but those are pretty broad still on the libraries where I mean, it's been limited is is more on the super specific areas. If you want to go deep into healthcare, they're working on libraries, but there's nothing there to to have a comprehensive set of symptoms, making up certain diseases or even lists of all the diseases, likewise for financial services. So we had to build a lot of that. We have, as an example, like 6,300 companies in the U.S. that we track. Many of them have different ways to to talk about that. We call them aliases, right? And there's referencing that AstraZeneca is Astra in the U.K. And you have other Berkshire, and Berkshire Hathaway, wouldn't always be by its full name. And so those types of derivations you have to go through. Once you get past that process, then you're really focused on the action for us it was what's the event Mm -hmm. we want to get the event we want to get it right and the way we release it is we do it by one event at a time so stock buyback is one event type dividend increase is another activist investor coming into a company is another event type and we perfect the understanding the ai has of that event over time and so which is when you start maybe the error rate might be 40 percent and then you have someone going yes no yes no that's correct that's wrong and then you get to an error rate that's more like three percent or zero depending upon how long the process you've gone to train it and then you get there and you say okay at this point are we ready to flip the switch to full automation Mm -hmm. or not or is there something else that we need to give a secondary look at for example is there maybe a filing that the company has to do that is like a almost like a second reference check that the AI can look at and say, I think this is a stock buyback, but let me check to make sure they did a filing on this. Mm -hmm. Same day, there is a filing and it's labeled as material event. So high likelihood that this is a buyback and you can programmatically do that. And so we rolled out 24 events to start. We want to get to about 300. Event types. We don't want to overwhelm users and certainly overwhelm the system by trying to do too much at once. But that's the path of just figure out one thing, perfect it,
0: move to next, and so forth. How long does it take, and maybe this is a variable question, but how long does it take to create an event, would you say, training it and then perfecting it, getting it to that very low error rate percentage? It
1: depends. Depends on the source, depends on the event. But generally, I would say you could get something up and running that's Got an error rate, excuse me, in a couple of days. And then at that point, you have to start the training. And it really is a matter of how much data there is at. Mm-hmm. So some of the events don't happen that often. So you end up spending more time over a longer period of time waiting for those things. Others might happen three, four or 5,000 times, you know, a year or a month. There's mm-hmm. um, okay. if you can train it rapidly and go through that quantity of data, then you can get the error rate down pretty low, pretty fast. Part of it is we've built the system so that it can look at these really hyper-specific scenarios. And that's where our system differs from a lot of the off the shelf products, which are much more broad-based. You have to think about casting a huge net on the ocean and then narrowing down the type of catch that you want from there versus line fishing for a certain fish type and occasionally you get the wrong one and you train it and that's the difference of, of the approach so we can do it much more efficiently with our approach yeah
0: really interesting when you when you are going through and creating this creating the models for the various different events are you able to see like rank these things where you're able to see like, this is something that happens frequently. So this would be an easier thing to be able to train, or is it kind of something where you have this idea that we're going to go out and test this thing. You don't really know how often this is happening. And then maybe it doesn't happen frequently enough where it's really giving you very much information to be able to train. I'm just curious on what that selection process or hierarchy rating hierarchy of this should be the next one that we test because it does happen frequently or what have you. What does that look like for you? How do you guys Mm -hmm. go about determining this is a good one that we want to jump into and learn more about?
1: There's a few ways we approach it. The first is that there's a good amount of academic literature on certain types of events and how they impact share prices. So whenever we can, we try to piggyback off of those. Some of the studies date back to the 1970s. And they are very comprehensive. And you have PhDs at University of California and and otherwise that are studying these things. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel in terms of knowing that event impacts the share price. We just need to figure out how to get that event fast into the system and take the unstructured text and turn it into something structured and then do the analytics around it. In some cases, we're looking at that. In other cases, we start with what hedge funds do the large hedge funds the largest ones all have event-driven trading divisions and they have certain strategies that are outlined and known and we got to look at some of those and see hey can we give anybody access to this can we democratize this in some cases we've done that made it really easy and pissed off a few hedge funds along the way while doing that and then the third is we have some insight and we have experience in the market and we just say it's not a rounded service, unless we tackle these other types of events that just we know are common. We know that they're going to cause share price movements. Anecdotally, we know this, we need to prove it out. And then we can quickly look at all the data, which we collect. So we collect tons of information. It's just first piece of what we're doing is big time data mining and getting all every announcement from every company. And so we can search those announcements very quickly and see if there was only two results in the last three months, it's probably not going to be a good event, right? It may have had impact, but it's not recurring enough. I things like when and Net- Netflix cracked down on password sharing, that was a big event, but it's not one that happens very often to very many companies. So it's not worth us incorporating that into our platform. Because we're trying to do is find events that can become strategies, just following that one event at a time and saying, you know what, every time this event happens, the share price moves. The next time I get an alert, I know exactly how it's going to react and I can play that accordingly. So we do look at the volume from there. Then we can narrow down and say, yeah, okay, this got 500 results set. And we can quickly see visually that there are errors that we'll have to work through. You know, but it's a solvable problem at that point so there's sort of three ways that we could tackle it and and sometimes we get requests straight from the users that we look at we hadn't Mm -hmm. thought somebody recently was asking a very specific question about dilution events and things of that nature for small cap companies where they quietly issue shares but don't tell anybody Mm -hmm. really they put it out in a filing but then the share price drops and nobody knows why and as you go digging around, you realize they just issued 10% more shares. So the value
0: of the current shares goes down. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah, that is fascinating. Uh, and uh, the mental gymnastics that you have to go through to be able to really hone in on, this is an opportunity that we should be looking at, we shouldn't be looking at, and just doing that digging. Yeah. Really mm-hmm. interesting stuff. We had talked earlier about the, the life crafting process that we all like to go through. And you had mentioned some of your highest ROI things that you do in your life were a few different things. Do you mind jumping into that a little bit and we can walk through that and maybe learn a little bit about from you what you're currently doing to be able to solve those or contribute to those high ROI activities? Sure.
1: Happy to. So on a personal basis, non-work non basis, my favorite activity is being on a boat. I just love it just need that kind of aqua therapy something about being in big water with nothing around really clears my head in a way that is is the same like going on vacation for three or four days and when you have a busy schedule that's meaningful so i tried over the years to get on a boat as much as possible and have thought about what kind of business or work do i need to facilitate more time on a boat and it always boiled down to, okay, I need to be able to be laptop only, right. Be able to take that laptop anywhere, run the business from a laptop, which means, uh, I'm not going to be an in-person sales professional. I don't want to be in an office full of people all the time. And so that ends up being kind of web-based digital. It's a driving force. Okay. i got to be able to do that. Likewise, uh, when something comes up, I need to be able to react relatively quickly. That means that we set up the system. So it's either automation, when customers come in, they get automated responses or it's one click away that we can respond. Email can take care of it or anything that we have can be solved without huge amounts of internet connectivity, right? And so if I can get there and I backtrack from that and say, all right, 10 years from now, I want to just be exclusively on a boat. If I can have a constant, steady stream of income from a business that takes very little new effort to do anything, but just keep it going, that's a double win, right? Financial win, but also a huge personal win for me.
0: Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about, too, before we jump into the other subject, talk a little bit about the, what is it being on the boat that it does for you? What is your kind of your mental state or do you go through any type of exercises or anything like that to... Be able to disconnect so that you are able to fully recover. Like you said, a half a day on a boat is like a four day vacation for you. Talk about that, like that disconnect process that you go through to be able to, you know, gain so much relaxation, rejuvenation from that short amount of time.
1: I think it boils down to the focus, focusing on one thing for an extended period of time. And one thing that I really enjoy normally on a daily basis. I've got family, I've got kids, I've got work, dog, friends, everyday life stuff. And I would say on a normal hour, I probably am thinking about 16 to 25 different tasks. What has to get done around the house and maintenance and pay bills and whatever it is, it's just a steady stream of stuff that just, it crams your brain. And if you're using your brain. 18 hours a day, nonstop, it's really one of the only parts of your body that you really never stop using. You think about it, like when you get tired, you lay down, maybe you go work out, but then you're done and you're sitting around in a chair, but your brain just keeps going and going. And so I rarely give it that time to just not overwork itself, to cool down the engines and deliver less RAM and processing. And part of it is me. I have a hard time just sitting still and not thinking. And so I have to have something that's really riveting to me and really engaging to me in order to not think about all these other things. I stopped reading fiction books years ago because I, I never got past like page 25 because like my brain started creating new things as I read through it. So for that, being on a boat, you can see water, you're moving fast. You have a job, you're whether you're fishing or whether you're just kind of pleasure cruising you're focused on driving you're observing nature you're looking at the birds and the fish and reading the signals in the sky to see if there's a a storm coming or whatever and i just get lost in it and i don't think about anything else and then four hours go by and it's almost like my brain just went to the spa got a massage sat in the the sauna and then went to sleep in the quiet room for an hour and then i come back and i'm completely refreshed, I think that's a big piece of it. And then the other piece is we spend a lot of time in small rooms. I don't care what room you're working in. There's always something around you, a wall, a ceiling, a monitor in front of you. And so having an unobstructed view means a lot to me, this big view where you can see miles of nothingness and I don't know, there's something just really calming about that. Maybe it's my my OCD nature of wanting everything clean and and tidy. I'm always cleaning stuff behind my kids and trying to clean the the countertops. Take them clean and the second I clean them they put all their toys right on top of that nice clean surface. So it might be some of that frustration around.
0: <laughs> yeah. No, I love that. And it's it's a, a portion too of recognizing that like you were going through the analogy of being stuck in these small rooms all the time and then when you are out there, just recognizing that this is beautiful, this is different. This is so much more relaxing than 90% of our daily lives being stuck inside. So it's even just recognizing that, that differentiator and absorbing that and appreciating that and being grateful for that too. So love that. Love that.
1: You're sure. And I always feel uh, as a part of nature instead of just observing it from a distance, like you in a painting. You're in the painting. Yeah. You know, and that changes the dynamic and you feel, I think, a different sense of your place in the world.
0: Yeah, you, I you love realize. that. I love that. And let's real quick jump into the other one because this is always interesting and this is more of the the entrepreneurial mindset. Everyone always has so many different things that they're trying to accomplish. Talk about your professional highest level ROI that you, you feel you get the most benefit out of, and then you'll break that down into action steps, what your process looks like.
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. So we, when we created this platform, it took a tremendous amount of work to get it to where it is today, where it's, it's processing 21 million events per year and identifying about 5,000 events that are proven to move the share price. And Any user can jump on now and do an analysis themselves. And so it took a long time to get there where you can just jump in and say, I want to find a good investment opportunity and maybe it's real estate and you want to look at events around Marriott or otherwise. And you can do that very quickly and make a lot of money with the platform. And so now that we're there, my main goal, where I think my skill set is unique is in explaining the system. In a way that makes it non-intimidating by doing content marketing or having conversations like this, making it very attainable that anybody can do this. You don't have to be some stock market genius. You don't have to have worked on Wall Street. And so my ROI is okay. If I can write a really good training post or a blog post that explains exactly the principles behind the platform. Or goes into detail that this kind of old school mentality of buy and hold is really a fable that was created by the banks so that we kept money in the banks and that it benefits mostly the banking system and the brokerage systems. And if I can really articulate that and then interweave how hedge funds are using these sort of event-driven trades to outperform the market in massive ways, it's a huge ROI because it's just, it's a you just see it connect and when we do it right, I get to see it in new customers that are onboarding to the platform with zero cost of acquisition, right? They come in and I can see it and it comes into my phone and might be eating dinner. I'm like, wow, okay, great. Three, four, five, six customers in the span of eating dinner all because I was able to articulate that properly. And we've tried to hire that out because I've been busy building it and focus. I part of the, the product team that works on the events and do a lot of the tech design work. And we've tried to find people to write and, and connect the dots. And I've been really surprised at our inability to find people that can do that successfully and realizing over time that you have to have a certain set of, set of skills. you got to be able to talk about it, make it interesting enough for people want to read it. And then connect the dots enough to how people would actually invest or trade. And you have to have knowledge of the market and then you have to have knowledge of kind of the macroeconomic view as well. It is rare, not impossible, but it's just rare to find those things together. And I've oddly found that I'm good at it. So if I can exclusively focus on that for a time, I know we're going to get a lot of return on investment for. Years, Mm -hmm. because the content's out there and and people run into that. And I see that for posts that I wrote two years ago, generating traffic today. Yeah.
0: That, That was something that someone just mentioned in another meeting that I was in, I think last week, maybe how, if you can answer these questions that are, call it evergreen questions, you do that work once and then it's out there constantly generating, constantly referring people to wherever you're referring them. Concentrating on creating content around those type of events is obviously incredibly valuable. From your perspective, what, did, what have you found as being the most effective deployment platform that, that you use? Is it on social? Is it like, do you guys have your own lists or how, how are you getting the content out there that to have, seems to have the most uh, impact for you?
1: We've tried a few different places. We've done some on some of the blogs, like startup forum type blogs. Uh, Indie Hacker, I think is one of them. We've done a little bit on LinkedIn with some mild success. We've written on our own, our own site, which has actually proved pretty successful. We've done some on uh, Reddit. We've done some on Quora. It really depends. What it is, if it's question-based, Quora and Reddit do really well. If it's long form, our own blog does really well. If we write it out properly, we haven't really found much success with Twitter. I feel like it just comes and goes and nobody really spends the time on it. When we write bigger, broader pieces, it does well on LinkedIn. So not so much focused on finance, but things like here's what the housing market
0: is doing, things
1: that everybody has a stake Uh in.
0: I just I, I just saw you you had posted something I think it was on LinkedIn it was about the the, the office office rental vacancy rates right now I think I just saw that on your LinkedIn profile when I was looking yep. at it earlier
1: Yeah exactly it's I don't know I'm I'm not like a doomsday person but there's some little bit of crisis brewing there if we can't get interest rates down pretty quickly There's going to be busto on a lot of these properties, which I think is going to affect the the regional banks more than anybody. Trying to put that into perspective because people, their view is I don't want to work from home. But if you realize your decision to not want to go into the office is actually going to come back to bite you when the commercial real estate market goes bust, bringing down some of the market and causing another bank bailout. You might want to rethink what you protest that, that boss who's trying to get you to the office two days a week uh, because it's not a, a linear analysis where you can just say, oh, well, I won't spend any time commuting and therefore I'm saving money. I'm like, your dollar might be worth less in a year and a half because mm-hmm. we're going to have to take down interest rates again. Yep, And that's a piece of it, I think, and trying to make sure you have different audiences that you're reaching. And, and not to say we're doing it perfectly by any stretch of the imagination. Mm -hmm. We have some ideas on how to do that better and we want to create more content and more
0: trainings, but it it takes time. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. And that's really what this whole effort is about is combining together everybody's experiences, finding out what people are doing that works for them. And then maybe somebody else has something else that's working together and being able to meld those action steps together so that everybody, everybody can benefit in in these processes and way that they're doing things together, right? And we try, so,
1: we, we tried to put out a lot of case studies on our website thinking, all right, that's clear. There's a clear outcome, right? Here's whatever it is, 20 case studies where the share price is moving anywhere between 10% to 90% over the span of that case study post alerts that they're going to get from level fields. And they haven't really picked up as much as we thought they would they're not really drawing as much traffic and they get traffic when somebody gets to the site and then eventually they navigate to them. But because no one's asking that question mm. of this obscure company that was up 10 times over the last 10 you know, X over the last three years, nobody's asking that question. So they don't run into the content. And then you have to think about how you're going to play the game for clicks, which it's unfortunate because that's why all the news outlets, they constantly write about Apple and NVIDIA and Tesla and Microsoft, because that's what people are asking about. But that also means it's, it's a very crowded marketplace. So then you're thinking, okay, what do I differentiate with? What are the, the smaller phrases or questions that I can help people answer or answering it more effectively? And it's a constant search for that to figure out what it is and, and occasionally we get surprised there were an article about how chat gpt is not going to be very useful for picking stocks and it ended up being one of our like trending articles that we wrote and it was yeah. one of those like we wrote in an hour kind of article yeah
0: I'm, I'm sure there's probably a lot of people that are searching for exactly that like how to use chat gpt because you have all these other predictors like crypto ChatGPT predicts XRP is going to be $10,000 in five years. Where a lot of people <laughs> doing those exact same type of searches. So yeah, that's interesting. You obviously always have to keep in mind with where people's mindsets and attention are at and, and try to play into that somehow. Thanks, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Matt Shields, founder of Invest in Square Feet, and we are a firm that's dedicated to helping business owners achieve financial freedom through passive investment in real estate. And in this session, we had on a remarkable individual in the AI space, Andrew Einhorn. If you'd like to connect further with Andrew, please go to levelfields.ai and use the contact form, and that will get over to Andrew. And as a special discount for our listeners, if you want to try Level Fields, use the discount code PODCAST23, and that is all one word, and it's PODCAST and the number 23, to receive a special discount on the platform.